from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The sheriff said he then grabbed Justin's right arm and drug him out of the way. He, mo he moved the body? He moved the body. It's real for us. It's happening for us. And we are going to challenge it. And Biden said that his DOJ is going to be different from the last president, particularly as it relates to the Civil Rights Division. Well, then prove it. Come into Missouri and take a look at the murders that have taken place, black men at the hands of white men. Take a look at it. Bring your Civil Rights Division here. Bring, you have a U.S. attorney here. Let her do her job. I'm Sarah Fenske. Earlier this week, the prosecutor in Crawford County, Missouri, made an announcement. He said he would not bring charges against a man who'd killed his neighbor in a Bourbon, Missouri trailer park. The man who'd been killed is 28-year-old Justin King. He'd previously lived in St. Louis. He was black. And the man who shot him is white. The case has gained attention from the Missouri chapter of the NAACP and other civil rights activists. They say the failure to file charges in this case is part of a pattern of black men being killed with impunity in rural Missouri. And joining us now with more on this case is the Reverend Daryl Gray. He is a civil rights activist and a minister based in St. Louis. Reverend Gray, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you, particularly in the midst of all this plexiglass and COVID stuff, but uh, thank you for your interest in this. I know that the family is listening uh, and the family appreciates the fact that people want to know, uh, want to get more information about this. And I understand a lot of this family, this is a St. Louis family. What was Justin King doing in, in uh, Crawford County? He went down there to, to be with his daughter. He has an eight-year-old daughter uh, and uh, he's that kind of father. Uh, he's not an absentee dad. He's not a deadbeat dad. He was a good father. As a matter of fact, the day that he was killed, uh, his daughter was with him uh, in the trailer. Oh, my. Yeah, her daughter right across the street. And so this has been very traumatic, uh, obviously, for the daughter. It's been traumatic uh, for Mama Eva and, and uh, Father John, uh, have, who had to sit in on this, um, I, I mean, honestly, a, a farce, a sham of an inquiry, and had to sit through it and listen uh, to people basically seemingly justify uh, the shooter versus seeking justice for the person that had been killed and had to listen to that. I mean, we felt it went bad from the very beginning. We saw the, the panel, six people. And uh, you're talking here about the coroner's inquest. This is a panel of six citizens put together to assess this case, a very unusual procedural move here. Exactly. But the, the, the problem was, the, the, was it a, a coroner's inquest? It couldn't have been because the sheriff selected the, the panel. It was the sheriff whose office did the investigation. It was the sheriff whose office provided the quote-unquote evidence, and now you're, the sheriff is asking his friends uh, to be on a panel to make a determination on, on, on his work and the work of his department. The so this is not like a jury where this is a, a totally random selection and citizens are getting their turn and then they're being vetted. This is the sheriff picks six people. Exactly. And, and that was the first thing we questioned. If it is a coroner's inquest, why didn't the coroner pick the panel? Why the, why the sheriff? The sheriff obviously has uh, some motivation on, on making sure that what he has presented from his department uh, is substantiated, is corroborated, and and that's what happened. You had one 
one black uh, juror who's a Facebook friend of the sheriff's. And, and so and so from so the very, very beginning, unusual. It, it is extremely unusual, especially, uh, you know, with the tension throughout our country. The fact that as, as Nimron Chapel, our state NAACP president, indicated this is not the first suspicious death of black men uh, by the hands of white men in this state. And so you would think that people would want to get it right. We felt that the coroner. Uh, believe that they had to do something because of the kind of attention that this has been getting. But from the very first witness, who was the sheriff, the sheriff said when he got the call and pulled up, he saw Justin laying on the ground, leaning against Eric Barber's car. The sheriff said he then grabbed Justin's right arm and drug him out of the way. He, which, mo- he moved the body? He moved the body. He said it on the stand. This is the sheriff who gets to the scene sees Justin on the ground and drags him by his right arm. He moves. See, already there's, in, in my mind, you, you, you've contaminated evidence. You've yeah. contaminated a crime scene, and you're the sheriff. And, and we went through a list of observations throughout the, the whole day. They and, and remember, Ray, before we get yeah. into too much about the inquest, yeah. I do want to set the scene for people who haven't read the media coverage about this case and don't even understand what happened between these two men. So Justin King, he's living in a trailer there in Crawford County, Missouri. Again, this is about, it's a short drive west on I-44 from here. It's before you get to Rolla. Right. So he's living there to be close to his daughter. He had gone over to a neighbor's house. And these these two were friends. Yes. They, they had a good relationship. Um, and they had a a positive interaction that morning. Apparently, uh, one shared a joint with the other. This is a a positive friendship here, um, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, So what happened then right before leading up to this shooting? And and that's an excellent question. And and that is the question that we have not gotten an answer to. Eric Barber was, I wouldn't even say he was interviewed or interrogated. We saw the, the videotape of him in the Uh, in the jail, and the police officer asked Eric Barber, the shooter, tell us what happened. And so for about 15 or 20 minutes, Eric Barber tells his side of the story, beginning with he and Justin looking for a woman's dogs. Okay. Looking for the dogs, ending up in Justin's trailer, ending up Eric Barber giving Justin a joint. It's all on video. And Justin saying to Eric Barber before Eric left his trailer, I love you, bro. Yeah. And so now you have a video that shows uh, Justin coming, uh, going across the street, going to Eric's trailer. The prosecutor and the police contend he went there angry, but there's no video, there's no audio. So you're saying that you've determined by his body language that he was angry. There's nothing to verify Mm -hmm. that Justin was angry. Yes, he went over to the trailer that we know. There was a girlfriend in the trailer. Her testimony was not was not uh, uh, put into evidence. Uh, obviously, the the daughter was in the trailer. No testimony put into evidence. So and, and nobody has explained nobody. what his state of mind was as he returned to this trailer with this man that he'd gotten a joint from. Friendly, exactly. And he he went there only wearing pajama pants. Okay. No shirt, no shoes. Pajama pants. So this suggests this was a casual visit of some sort. It, it and, and and listen. Even if we say it was beyond casual, let's let's say hypothetically that uh, Justin was upset. 
There's nothing to to show, no evidence to show that he was angry to the degree that Eric Barber's life would have been threatened. He had no weapons. He had he had nothing. In his, he had he had no knife, gun, rocks, sticks, bricks, nothing. And he knew Eric Barber. He knew Eric Barber had 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 a gun. Eric Barber, by the evidence that witnesses gave at the inquiry indicated that the whole trailer park knew that Eric Barber was in possession of at least a gun because he had shown this gun. I'm glad you brought this up because the Post-Dispatch had a good in-depth story about this case. They reported this, quote, other trailer park residents said they did not believe the events as described by the neighbor. Again, this is the neighbor charged in the shooting, uh, though none or who has not been charged in the right. shooting, the neighbor that we know fired the gun, um, though none witnessed the shooting. All the neighbors said they liked Justin King. Many said they did not trust the neighbor. They described incidents when he showed them his gun and made others uncomfortable in social situations. Three residents who were near the trailer after hearing gunshots testified that Justin King said, I thought we were friends as he lay on the driveway. That, again, is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch account of this. So other people raise concerns about this guy and his gun. Right. And and, and during and and that's what I guess was so shocking to us that the the panel didn't ask questions. They, they, They didn't ask. Well. We only have one side of this story. Why didn't you interrogate? Why really didn't you push Eric Barber about uh, the joint that he gave him? Uh, you, you talked about uh, just, uh, uh, Justin's toxicology report, but you didn't talk about Eric Barber's toxicology report. You, there was no mention of, of, of if he had alcohol in his system, if he had drugs in his system, although he admitted having a bag of, of, of weed. He admitted drinking that day. So he, he admitted all these things, but then you don't provide the toxicology report, but you provide Justin's toxicology report, which did indicate uh, on behalf of uh, uh, Justin that it did not raise to the level of being alarming or concerning, but you still provided it. You, you didn't provide pictures of the inside of the house. You didn't provide pictures of the television that was allegedly thrown or the television that was destroyed. You didn't provide pictures of the door, which was allegedly beat down. You didn't provide any of this information, and none of the panelists asked. Hmm. And so all of those things, uh, you said you took a blood test uh, of Eric Barber. From the shooter. From the shooter. But you don't reveal the results of that blood test. And so all of these things, they say that, supposedly when Justin came into the house, uh, supposedly he went back into Eric's bedroom. Eric said that he was concerned because Eric said he had guns back in the bedroom. So he got his gun and put it in his pocket. Well, if you were that concerned, why would you put your gun in your pocket? These are the words of Eric Barber. Why would you put your gun in your pocket? You see uh, Justin coming back out of the room. There's nothing in his hand. He's got pajama pants on. You say, Eric Barber said, there were no punches thrown. Well, then where's the struggle? Eric Barber said, when Justin brushed me on my shoulder with his shoulder. The, er, the, Eric Barber raised up his shirt at the quote-unquote interrogation and showed no bruises, no, 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 no scars, no anything. So where's the struggle? Where is the concern about you being threatened to the point where you shoot somebody not once? Not twice, but three times. First in the leg, second in the head, mm-hmm. and the third shot, the kill shot, in the chest as Justin is down. 
So they don't show pictures of trajectory. They don't show pictures of the, the porch where they allegedly struggled. The porch that is uh, probably four by five. A tiny little porch. A tiny porch cluttered with uh, an old an old chair and everything. So, and the, the, the pictures that we saw, the, the video that we saw could not definitively show struggle. Mm-hmm. It couldn't, even with the FBI trying to brighten it. And so what we're saying is this was not a thorough investigation. And so you have a lot of concerns about this inquest, and yet within a day of the inquest saying, hey, we found this was justified, we don't recommend charges here, the prosecuting attorney, this is David Smith of Crawford County, um, came out and said he was not going to bring charges. He said this, quote, if an aggressor attempts to enter, enters, and or remains after entering private property without the consent of a defender who is lawfully occupying that private property, the defender is permitted to use any level of force, including deadly force, to defend themselves so long as the defender has a reasonable belief that the aggressor is using or is about to use any level of unlawful force upon them. The law additionally provides that when upon their private property, a defender has no duty to retreat from the aggressor. He's quoting Missouri law in saying this here. Missouri's castle doctrine does allow for deadly force against intruders. Is maybe the problem here Missouri law versus its application? It's both. But I think that even in the instructions to the jury, when you talk about any reasonable person, we don't know what state of mind Eric Barber was in. We don't have the toxicology report. We did not have a thorough investigation or interrogation. Eric Barber, out of his own mouth, said, Justin was my, we were friendly. We had hung out. We've done all of this. So what, what happened between Eric Barber and Justin to the point of this person, unarmed person, being killed. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The Castle Doctrine is something that we do need to, 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 to revisit. We do. It's the most strict Castle Doctrine in the country. Mm-hmm. It is. We know that. But when you use the word any reasonable person, then that goes to somebody's mental state. What about Eric Barber's mental state? Did he have a criminal record? We submit that he did. He, he had been charged with assaulting someone. But, but that wasn't brought up in the inquest. Who Eric Barber was, the only thing that the prosecutor did was to provide evidence to justify Eric Barber's story, the only witness who is alive. Was, was Justin in there to, to, to threaten to, to kill this man? I submit in pajama pants, no shirt, no weapon, and knowing that Eric Barber was armed, mm-hmm. no. And at what point, as I said, if, I'm, if, if I honestly believe that my life is threatened, I would not put my gun in my pocket. So you have some huge concerns about how this has been handled to this point. What would you like to see? I mean, the prosecuting attorney says he's not going to pursue this. This is his jurisdiction. Do you want to see the feds get involved? We, we've already sent a letter. We sent a letter yesterday to the U.S. attorney uh, asking for them to, to intervene, for them to look at this case. I know that uh, Rod Chappell, our state NAACP president, has reached out to the state attorney general. We didn't have any confidence in the local prosecutor in the beginning. You, you can't be too surprised by this inquest and based on comments you made even before that. And we're not. And, and you know what? It, it's, it's, it's sad because you're absolutely right. Going into this, uh, we didn't believe that there would be justice 
uh, for Justin going into this. Uh, the family lawyer still has not received uh, the, the evidence packet from the prosecutor it, to this date. And this, this uh, shooting happened in November. In November. And the family has not been able to view. The lawyer has not been able to view. It has been held back by the prosecutor even up to today. And so we believe uh, that Justin's civil rights have been violated. We believe that uh, that uh, uh, Eric Barber took his life unnecessarily. Uh, we believe that that third shot, that kill shot, er- Justin is down. He shot twice. He's down. He's down. Why? Why kill him? He could have stopped shooting at that point. At that point. And I think that those are the things that have to be discussed. Those are the things that have to be investigated. Eric Barber's state of mind should be in question. That's what should be in question. So there's one more thing I want to get to in our final couple minutes here today, and that is that you believe this is part of a pattern, not a pattern on the part of this particular person who fired the gun, but a pattern when it comes to black men in rural Missouri. Don, Don, uh, Dante Martin, Dante Martin in uh, in Madison County, uh, goes to a party. Young black uh, black high school football player from St. Louis County goes to a party in Madison County. Only black guy there ends up. Uh, supposedly, they said he shot himself. They said he shot himself. Uh, the father, the person that owned the house, uh, about racist has made racist comments uh, that came up publicly. But Dante's dead, and they said it was suicide. Uh, you've got Troy Sanders, uh, uh, who uh, down in uh, Mississippi County, he, I mean, he, he stops and asks the police for help, and he ends up dead. They finally settled it, but he ends up dead. Uh, you've got another young man uh, at the uh, uh, Mississippi County uh, Jail just a couple of months ago. He's asking for help. Uh, he's sick. The the jailers, the sheriff there who's responsible for the jail, does not get him medical attention, and he dies in that jail. This is Missouri. This is what, this is, what is happening. But it's not the only one. What, what was it, last year, uh, down on the south side of town, where a black guy uh, and, a, and, and his white girlfriend are arguing, white guy goes into his house, gets his gun, takes a stance, and shoots the guy in the head. In the head, outside. Yeah. This is what... This is, this is what we're dealing with. And, 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 and what we're saying is that, that there's a climate of vigilante justice, white men against black men, uh, and the law is protecting them. The law is justifying them, uh, justifying it. The, the, the sheriff, in all of these cases, you know, in, in all of these cases, we don't have a lot of hope. I mean, we go into an inquest, we go into an inquiry, we go into court. And we don't have a lot of hope, but we keep on fighting. But the pattern is out there. It's real for us. It's happening for us. And we are going to challenge it. And Biden said that his DOJ is going to be different from the last president, particularly as it relates to the Civil Rights Division. Well, then prove it. Come into Missouri and take a look at the murders that have taken place, black men at the hands of white men. Take a look at it. Bring your Civil Rights Division here. Bring, you have a U.S. attorney here. Let her do her job. Well, Reverend Daryl Gray, um, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll keep us updated as you hear or don't hear from the U.S. Attorney's Office. We will. And thank you very much for your interest. It means a lot. Reverend Gray is the pastor of Greater Fairfax Missionary Baptist Church. He's a longtime civil rights activist.
This episode was produced by Kayla Drake with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.